You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law, brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Welcome to Done By Law for Tuesday the 1st of December 2020. You're listening to us on 3CR Community Radio. 8.55am and 3CR digital or streaming online and podcasted via 3cr.org.au. Welcome. And we're proud to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land um, we're broadcasting from. And since we're recording this via Zoom, that's many different lands. Um, So all of them and um, pay respects to the elders past, present and emerging, and we also acknowledge this land was taken, it was never ceded. We're your hosts tonight, uh, Daniel Bavcevic. Hi, Dan. Hey, Sue. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> Gemma Lee Dodds. Hey, Gemma. Hi, Sue. Hi, Dan. How are you going? And I'm Sue Robertson. And tonight um, we're talking about domestic violence. And just a warning that tonight we're going to be discussing domestic violence Um, and other forms um, such as economic violence. If any of the matters that we've discussed tonight cause you concern, please uh, call 1800RESPECT or get in touch with your local community uh, legal centre. Lockdowns in response to COVID-19 have resulted in a surge in domestic violence around the world and Australia is no exception. Our special guest this evening is Radhika Chowdhury, She's a PhD candidate at the Australian National University College of Law and a former solicitor at Canberra Community Law. Radhika's experience as a community lawyer means that she knows how economic abuse compounds victimisation in domestic violence cases. And that's our focus tonight, economic abuse and a special way of thinking that Radhika has about um, looking at this in a different way and trying to teach the courts a different way to think about financial abuse in the context of domestic violence. So welcome, Radhika. Hello, thank you for having me. To start off with, can you just tell us a little bit about what your research is about? Um, Yes, so you've set it up quite nicely because what I'm looking at is legal responses to economic forms of domestic violence. So economic abuse um, is a form of domestic violence that's now recognised across Australian jurisdictions and it encompasses a really wide range of behaviours. So it's basically anything that compromises or controls someone's ability to deal with their own finances and that can be things like withholding their income, um, holding onto their bank cards so they can't access their account. Um, It can be 
forcing them to take on debts. It can be things like getting them to lie to Centrelink for entitlements and a, a whole host of other things as well. Um, what I'm specifically looking at are those situations where a, a woman usually, um, although men can be victims of economic abuse as well, um, but where a woman has been forced to take on a debt um, in their name. So that could be taking out a credit card. It could be um, guaranteeing a mortgage, um, something like that. Um, and the reason I'm interested in that type of abuse is because those sorts of transactions, so entering into a, a mortgage contract, for example, or um, a, a signing up for a credit card, those kinds of um, contracts are enforceable against the person who has entered that contract. So unless a court intervenes, um, it's not intrinsically unlawful for a woman to, to go and get that kind of finance. Um, and that means that um, this kind of abuse can actually be quite damaging because it can result in significant financial liability. And there are various ways that courts uh, and principles that courts use to set aside contracts where um, they've been procured in abusive circumstances. Um, so I really wanted to look at the way that courts use those principles and whether they're able to effectively identify when abuse is happening. So um, yes, that's my research is looking at. What is it that you're interested in that's different than what's usually um, the way that courts have thought about this stuff? Um, well, I guess there's two things that are a bit new about what I'm doing. The first thing is that there are actually very few um, legal scholars in Australia at the moment who are even talking about economic abuse. So just for context, in the ACT, economic abuse was only introduced into the Family Violence Act in 2016. And so um, wow. it's, really, it's really quite a recent um, entry into um, our thinking about what domestic violence looks like. Um, and so courts... Um, although these principles that they use um, to set aside contracts in certain circumstances, those principles are quite old. They evolved before we were really talking about domestic violence in this kind of way. So there are actually very few legal academics talking about it at all. But specifically what I'm doing, which um, hasn't been done before, is to not only talk about the doctrines and how they work, um, but also to see... Uh, empirically what courts are doing. Uh, so I'm looking at judgments from the last 10 years in Australia um, where a partner has sought to have a contract set aside on the basis that there was some abuse happening. Um, and I want to look at how the court treated those submissions and whether they ultimately decided to set aside the contract or not. Um, and that empirical data set, I think, is really interesting to, to look at, to try and see um, what it is that courts understand their job and role to be um, in those sorts of cases. That's fascinating, um, Renika. That's um, obviously I, I, I've known of economic abuse, I guess, being a, a significant feature of domestic violence cases. Um, and in my own work, I do a, a bit in terms of equity and um, unconscionable conduct and the like, and that's much more of a commercial kind of focus. But I'm embarrassed to say I really haven't thought of the intersection or I suppose um, how domestic violence cases would borrow from those equitable principles as well um, in, in, and I guess, developing the court's jurisprudence perhaps in that regard, kind of bringing in those, those really um, old school kind of economic principles into domestic violence cases, um, just from a really kind of slightly boring technical perspective, does that literally mean that 
domestic violence cases of the family court are now looking at um, like what kinds of like obviously we've got the ASIC Act, we've got the Corporations Act. Do you, is it a question of looking at just corp, just the contract that a, that a usually a woman might have entered into, or um, bringing in equity, I guess, as a concept into the family court? Um, yeah, so um, the, so actually it turns up in two main contexts. One is in the family law context, and I'll come back to that in a second, um, but it also comes up in the Supreme Court context, and usually the most typical example is where a woman has become a guarantor for a mortgage that is for a debt that doesn't really belong to, to that woman, so it might be to s- secure finance for a husband's company. Um, so where that, where that woman has entered into that guarantee, the main thing that the court will examine is not the validity of the contract. What's at issue here is whether or not the contract has been vitiated by some other factor. So here we're now, as you alluded to just then, looking at equitable principles generally. Um, so we're looking to see whether um, it would be unconscionable to enforce that contract, notwithstanding that it is a valid contract. Um, and the circumstances in which a court will um, determine that it would not be just to enforce the contract um, are governed by three or four interrelated principles. And I'm looking at the way that those three or four doctrines have operated in Australian courts in the last 10 years. So that's the Supreme Court context. And the doctrines that I'm specifically looking at for any law junkies out there who are listening are um, undue influence unconscionable conduct, um, duress, and what is sometimes called the doctrine from Yerke and Jones or the special wives equity. Um, So these four doctrines form like a constellation or a network of principles that can sometimes be used by women who are experiencing abuse to say, for example, with duress, I was forced to sign this contract with undue influence. I'm in a relationship where the power is very unequal for unconscionable conduct I was at a special disadvantage in relation to this person and they exploited that disadvantage or with the special wives equity, I'm married to this person and I didn't understand what I was signing. Um, So all of those things to a greater or lesser extent may be relevant to um, abusive situations. So those are the doctrines that we see in the Supreme Court. Interestingly, the context in which it shows up in the family court is around binding financial agreements. So uh, effectively prenups. Um, Now, prenups um, are uh, agreements about the distribution of property in the event that uh, a relationship breaks down. Um, And the Family Law Act provides a mechanism where you can certify that you have had legal advice about a binding financial agreement. And then if you separate, that agreement becomes enforceable and that determines the the distribution of property. Um, So it's not uncommon to see one party make an application to have the binding financial agreement set aside on the basis that it was entered into unconscionably. And the family court actually resorts back to those same equitable principles that the Supreme Court uses to make that determination. Um, So you see it also in the family court um, via these equitable principles. Fascinating. Notice in your research that's been published in the Australian Journal of Family Law, which um, I believe that's where you can access your really um, detailed research into this area, that a lot of the cases deal with uh, mortgage transactions. And I'm curious, given your community law experience and our own panel's community law experience, if there's um, any cases or any um, advocacy in the area of economic uh, economic abuse perpetrated in low-income relationships where a mortgage might not even be 
on the cards. So, for example, relationships where someone might be taking small amounts of money at a time from someone um, and putting them into uh, serious financial dire straits, but not to the point where they will have the means to sue them or to make an application to the family court about a significant transaction, but nonetheless still needing help and redress. Absolutely. Like it's it's definitely something that um, takes a very wide variety of forms. So, yeah, the ones you see in the Supreme Court tend to be related to very, very large transactions, but that in no way diminishes the impact of um, other types of financial abuse um, that is perpetrated across all socioeconomic groups. And when I worked at Canberra Community Law, I certainly worked with women who had been really, really financially compromised by abuse. So in those cases, it might have been a similar situation where they'd been forced to take out consumer credit. Um, so the amounts are smaller, um, but the impact is, is really quite devastating because that debt might mean that they weren't able to service rent payments, um, which would put them at risk of homelessness. Or it might have been that they were in a relationship where their partner was refusing to contribute to rent, again, putting them at risk of homelessness. Um, I had other clients in my other practice area, which was social security, who had been forced to make misleading statements to Centrelink um, to, to get entitlements that they weren't actually entitled to receive. And, and that put them at risk of prosecution, but also left them with debt. Um, so it shows up in a lot of, of different ways. And I think the common factor of all of these things is that finances are used as a way to control someone or keep them in, in a position of victimisation. And that has uh, a lot of far-reaching consequences for their financial security, but their ability to leave um, a, a, an abusive relationship as well. Um, so, yeah, I did see it sort of on the on on the front line of the community law work I did as well the the way that we address it for for clients who uh, obviously are not going to be in a position to go to the Supreme Court to argue their case uh, would be to work I guess to use the internal mechanisms within Centrelink for example or use the dispute settlement systems and um, pathways available from um, credit providers to try to get some deferment of payment or, or debts waived and it would have to happen on that scale. Uh, but the arguments that we were making about how domestic violence impacts these women um, was sort of is the common thread, I think, between that work and the research I'm doing now. I'm curious to follow up then on what you're saying that there's often not an ability to go to the Supreme Court and alternative resolutions has to be sought. Whether there's been any thought given to making it more widely available to access, you know, victims of crime assistance for people that have experienced economic abuse among other coercive control behaviours, where it might not necessarily fall into the definition of a criminal offence that you can access state-based scheme um, compensation. And so you're sort of locked out because you can't sue someone um, and you face a very difficult battle against a credit agency or facing homelessness and... You can't even get victims of crime assistance. What what might need to change there? Um, well, I probably am straying a little bit outside of my area of expertise. And I understand that the ACT does have a fairly generous victims of crime 
um, uh, sort of um, provisions and one of the most generous in the country. So uh, I, I certainly couldn't speak for Victoria. Um, I do think that um, it is a little bit of a gap um, because, as I said, sort of at the top of our, our conversation, the issue with a lot of these transactions is that they're not intrinsically unlawful. And so what you have to be able to do is identify the abusive context in which these behaviours are happening. And that identification of abusive context requires uh, a really robust understanding of how domestic violence works and being able to uh, correctly identify a pattern of controlling behaviour. And so it's, I think, always going to be a bit of a challenge for the state to respond to that. And I think that's that's the work that needs to be done in this area. We've talked a bit about, I guess, how the courts would grapple in circumstances where there's a, there's, there's a debt that has arised for for one for one party, which is obviously usually the the woman in this context for for a domestic violence matter, um, do, does your research comment or, or consider, I guess, um, circumstances of where um, there has been um, a, a economically unequal relationship, um, and whether or not in divorce or settlement proceedings that might follow from that, if if one party, for example, was prevented from working or, um, which we know is obviously another e- example of coercive control, um, in terms of how the court might step in and say something about that what would be a fair split between the parties, for instance, would it also in that context consider these kinds of equitable principles of saying, well, yes, you might have you might have actually worked for, for 10 years of the time, but we've got evidence to say that this party was prevented from being allowed to work um, and therefore she gets X amount more? That's a really, really good question. Um, it's so, the, so my research focuses on just the equitable doctrines and really looking at contract vitiation. Um, so I haven't um, done a comprehensive study of property division. My understanding of property division is that it's exclusively governed by the Family Law Act and there is a fairly formulaic procedure for determining the asset pool and then determining the division of that asset pool. The extent to which they consider domestic violence is fairly limited. There Mm. are authorities. Um, There are a couple of authorities that allow for an adjustment of the division on the basis of domestic violence, but the threshold for triggering an adjustment is quite high. Um, So, um, what is really required is a fairly serious ongoing campaign of severe physical violence is um, usually what is is required to trigger that kind of um, adjustment from the from the family court um, and there are a number of uh, fantastic scholars who write in this area. So um, the one who's come to my mind at this moment is Juliet Behrens has written a lot about why that might be the case um, in terms of the the Family Law Act being um, premised on a paradigm of no-fault divorce. And so the Family Court, um, my understanding of Behrens' argument is that um, that might, you know, lead to some reticence um, for the family court to get into questions of domestic domestic violence. But I found that actually where I was expecting to find a bit more consideration of domestic violence, I didn't find that in property division. Where I found it was in the binding financial agreement stuff. We'll just take a short break and we'll be back to carry on this very interesting conversation. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. 
we're back on 3CR chatting with Radhika Chowdhury, who's the author of a new article called Tackling Financial Abuse with the Doctrine of Undue Influence, and that's been published in the Australian Journal of Family Law. It's really interesting, this old school idea of undue influence, which if you could explain it, well, from what I understand, tell me if I've got this wrong, that you're, um, the way that you're suggesting it's useful in this um, context of financial abuse is to focus, use sociological research to focus the court's minds, you know, the judge's minds away from, you know, a set of instances of um, provable, you know, financial abuse or, or yep. domestic violence to the idea that being in an abusive relationship in and of itself is underpinned by undue influence. Is that right? That's right. So undue influence is uh, an interesting doctrine because it's effectively a doctrine that is triggered when you're in an unequal relationship and that inequality um, has led to your own ability to make a free judgment um, being substantially impaired. So there are two ways that you can show undue influence. You can either point to specific instances of undue influence um, and say, well, at the time when I was signing this contract, this was the conduct that I was being subjected to and therefore I was unduly influenced. Or um, you can use um, evidence of your entire relationship and say, look, uh, my whole relationship is characterised by this dynamic. And if the court accepts that evidence, then it has the option of presuming that because of this ongoing relationship you have with someone, um, that when you have entered into a contract at the behest of this person, you've done it under the uh, under that undue influence. Um, and so what I have found is that that, um, that dimension of undue influence makes it a really useful um, doctrine to um, invoke with, when you have a domestic violence situation because um, what we now understand about domestic violence, the typology of domestic violence is usually characterised by ongoing low-level conduct. Um, and so often uh, a woman might be in a situation where they have entered into a contract as a result of this ongoing dynamic but can't point to a specific act of aggression that happened at the time they were signing a contract. Um, so we don't want to be limited by a court being fixated on particular events or when this heated conversation happened or didn't happen. We want them to be focusing on the global impact of domestic violence that we understand in sociology um, to be sort of the, the characteristic of this controlling behaviour, um, that we know it's not incident specific. And we understand that from all of the uh, prevalence studies and public health kind of uh, research that, that has taken place. So it would be nice to take those insights and be able to feed them into this doctrine so that it can work as it's supposed to um, because it's, it's got the theoretical uh, framework to support um, intervention in those sorts of cases. I was just going to ask you to um, clarify the word vitiated. I know the three or four of us know what that word means, but can you tell our listeners what yes. that means if, if you're able to use this idea or this doctrine to um, assist somebody to vitiate a contract, what does that mean? So uh, vitiation 
is just a term that means that a contract that would otherwise be enforceable is, uh, I guess, affected by a factor that means that the court will set it aside. So when you have a a contract, generally um, it becomes binding um, unless the court can identify a reason that would make it unfair to bind you to that contract. And those, um, that process of um, identifying a factor to set it aside is called vitiation. Um, so when we say that a contract has been vitiated, we are saying that um, it ought to be set aside. Thank you. Gemma. <laughs> Sorry, thank you. Um, we're all just too keen beans. Um, uh, Radhika, I guess given what you were saying before about um, trying to kind of draw the, the court's attention to questions of unconscionability or, or vulnerability, I guess, in particular, um, does the High Court's judgment in Cobalt cause you concern or um, cause for reflection and thinking about how um, unconscionability might be treated by the courts in that regard? Um, So unconscionability is a separate doctrine to undue influence. So where undue influence is really concerned with an inequality in a particular relationship, unconscionability is more focused on um, a particular vulnerability that the contracting person has. Um, So the Cobalt decision is fascinating and I think... um, like I have a lot of thoughts that I'm probably not super qualified to offer on on Cobalt because um, that is a case that deals with statutory unconscionability. So it deals with unconscionability that arises under the um, ASIC Act uh, rather than the pure equitable doctrine Um, and probably uh, scholars who are more embedded in statutory unconscionability are a better place to reflect um, on that. So I think that um, courts... um, it sort of remains to be seen what kind of cross-fertilisation there will be between the statutory unconscionability and um, the the equitable, pure equitable principle of, of unconscionability. And there are certainly some judges who um, are a little bit reluctant to, to conflate the two. So I might leave that question uh, and take it on notice. (laughs) And just to clarify for our listeners about that that nerdy discussion of law then, (laughs) the idea of equitable unconscionability refers back to this really, really, really old worldy area of law called equity and Mm. um, the idea that of unconscionability that Radek has just explained and statutory unconscionability means the way that that idea or that doctrine has been now transported into a particular piece of law and in that case the um, ASIC law. Yeah, so... Um, which, yeah, which is sort of um, uh, in contrast to, to, to as you were saying, um, Sue, the much older kind of body of equitable principles which really um, derive from like the 1500s um, as uh, a sort of way to um, ameliorate the more harsh implications of strict legal application. So it's fascinating to think about that when you talk about that coming from the 1500s in those days women weren't even, you know, like parties in legal actions. And no, you are no, using something no. really, really old and bringing it in yeah. to contemporary 
domestic violence, in particular financial abuse context, is fascinating how those ideas, those old school ideas can be used that way and moulded. It sounds to me that there's certainly changes that need to occur in uh, the way our Australian legal system and the courts interpret this. What are some of the big changes and what is the, how does someone prove undue influences? Does that need to change? That's a, that's a great question. So I think so. one of the things that I identified in my research is that despite the ability for courts to look at the ongoing impact or ongoing relationship between two people um, to presume that they are going to be subject to undue influence, courts continue to focus on incidents, uh, specific incidents, um, when they are um, considering the evidence. And so... Um, even where they accept a long-standing conduct by a perpetrator, they will use actual undue influence instead of presumed undue influence. And so I think the key is changing that approach. Um, So there are two ways that I can see that that could happen. One is to educate judges um, and get them to uh, really understand the coercive control typology of domestic violence so that they can better recognise this global impact of controlling behaviours. I am personally a little sceptical about how effective that might be. Um, saying, Monica? <laughs> I think one of the, one of the things that um, really strikes me from reading the judgments is that courts, um, I mean, judges are not necessarily always known for their workness, um, but they are also responding to the submissions that get put to them. And so feedback cycle where judges are continuing to focus on specific incidents and that means that lawyers who are doing the best they can by their clients are taking away from that that the success, most successful way to argue these cases is to identify specific incidents of violence. So really I think the call needs to go out to lawyers to frame their submissions in terms of coercive control and frame their submissions in terms of global impact and make the argument for presumed undue influence instead of actual undue influence. And I think that would at least force the court to engage with that material and make a decision um, based on those submissions rather than everyone just kind of um, gravitating towards this incident-specific approach. Um, So I think that that would be a really good or perhaps more promising way of getting some traction in the right direction. And when you say global impact, you mean you mean the f- taking into account the flavour of the relationship that mm. that is that is a consequence of um, family violence or domestic violence being underneath it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, I, I guess I mean global in terms of um, the ongoing impact that these kinds of behaviours have over a long period of time um, so that even if there are relatively infrequent um, significant confrontations, the whole tenor of the relationship is coloured by the context of control that exists between two two people so that even if there's no directly referable act of violence or abuse, it would be fair to say that the relationship is abusive and therefore the transactions entered into in that relationship need to be understood in that context. What you've um, said um, kind of just, just then reminds me a little bit of the way that the family of um, Tanya Day um, asked the coroner to consider how systemic racism played a role in her death. And so it was really asking the coroner to try and 
think outside the box and a bit creatively about broader social trends and taking broader evidence um, from anthropologists and other experts to kind of help, um, I guess, colour the, the overall context. So it's not just about the way in which the sort of very specific nuts and bolts led to somebody's death, but about the broader context. And I guess here you're suggesting that the courts ought also consider broader evidence about what the nature of economically um, violent relationships can do and what can they, they can result in. Yeah, I think I think the key is um, taking. Um, so, so I think the problem uh, is that because these, um, so so uh, having uh, one person in a relationship take out a, a credit card, for example, or guarantee a loan, is perfectly legal. And in a lot of relationships, it's not abusive. What makes it abusive is the context in which it happens. And so courts need a reliable framework for identifying that controlling context. And if they can do that, then they're much more likely to successfully identify a contract that needs to be set aside. Um, So I guess the key here is to use the frameworks that have been developed in other disciplines that are able to characterise that controlling conflict so that when they see evidence of it, they have some receiving sort of framework to um, to determine whether that threshold has been met. Because at the moment, in the absence of that, they sometimes miss it. Um, and that's a real shame. Mm. There's been a lot of discussion in Australia recently about uh, responsible lending laws um, being changed, mm. removed. And I'm curious as whether that might have a significant impact in relation to family violence and undue influence cases in the family court, in the Supreme Court, specifically for home loans and mortgages. Payday loans. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's a a really, it's a really good question. Um, The problem with mortgages, which we we didn't talk about, is um, when we're talking about abusive um, behaviours, we're talking about abusive behaviours between the partner and the person who signed the contract. So the bank who is actually a party to the contract, is not the one perpetrating the abuse. So an additional step that you need to show, apart from the fact that you are being abused, is that that abuse should be brought home to the bank and the bank should wear the cost of that abuse. So the responsible lending laws are really aimed at working out whether it's appropriate to hold a bank responsible um, such that they have to bear the liability of that um, cost. So, so responsible lending laws, I think the role that they play is really saying to um, lending institutions, if you don't take these precautions, if you don't do your due diligence, then you will be liable potentially for um, a transaction if it turns out that it was uh, procured in abusive um, circumstances. So I think they have an important role to play um, in in that sense of at least requiring financial institutions to do some basic work to um, ensure that they are not um, furthering the economic victimisation of someone. Um, So certainly I would be uh, quite nervous about any move by the government to make that dimension less uh, onerous for financial institutions. But I would probably add that I'm a little bit sceptical about how effective um, financial regulation can be in this context because it is notoriously difficult to determine, um, I guess, whether there is an abusive context to these to this sort of lending. Um, And 
sort of just getting someone to take independent legal advice and sign a certificate is not sufficient. Um, we know that people who are in abusive relationships can go through all these motions and nevertheless still be uh, still be subjected to to abuse and, and a financial institution may have no way of knowing that. And so um, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that that's necessarily as much of a solution as it might appear at first blush. Um, which and the other thing I just wanted to mention really quickly um, is that often the women that I worked with, because there's nothing intrinsically unlawful about taking on these sorts of financial liabilities, you know, for the sake of your husband's business or whatever. Um, a lot of women don't self-identify as victims of financial abuse at the time that it's happening. And it's only later when the patterns become clear and they're in a position to acknowledge the abuse and control that they might see that. So even if you had financial lending institutions doing a bunch of due diligence, it may be that the that the woman herself doesn't identify as someone who is being coerced or controlled until much later when they have that support around them. So, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a minefield in terms of regulating. That's very common in community legal centre land when you're dealing with um, clients um, in those situations. They often only identify part of the behaviour that's been perpetrated against them as abusive and are not even aware of the legal, the breadth of the legal definition. Um, hmm. um, interestingly, I just saw Westpac announce um, a package for domestic violence where they put out like a pretty strong ad campaign saying, you know, if you're a victim of domestic violence, get in touch with us and we'll help you. Like we'll help you set up separate bank accounts, all sorts of things. Um, so it's, it's, it's very interesting that the banks are also trying to sort of do what they can to minimise, well, I was going to say, well, I was going to say minimise their risk and liability, but actually probably also help with women. Um, yeah. I'm curious about that, if that's Westpac only doing that because they have a huge um, public image repair issue. Yeah. <laughs> so I, like, I wonder if that's just like a yeah. PR stunt and whether they're really going to follow through on that. Mm. You beat me to it, Dan. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I hate to be so cynical, but uh, I, I suspect there's an element of image management going on there. It would be very interesting to see what the other banks do. Yeah. Gosh, we could talk and talk and talk about this. It's fascinating. <laughs> but we're out of time. <laughs> we're way well, out of time. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Radhika, for, for joining us tonight and talking about your really fascinating and insightful research. And um, good luck with influencing those judges. <laughs> and, their and the lawyers. And the lawyers well. out there. Yeah. About thank the, the use of yeah. this idea. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much, guys. All right. Thank you, Radhika. And that was all we have on Done by Law on 3CR um, online and on your radio on 8.55am. Done by Law will be back again on Tuesday next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.